Reminds me, yesterday we had a, a friend come over that had a little nine-week-old puppy and uh, spent the day with us and our eight-year-old dog. And uh, although they're cute, you look at them with the accidents on the floor and needing help up the stairs and everything, and you wonder how you ever got through that phase yourself to get to the point where your dog is nice and mature and pre-programmed. And in many ways, kids are the same way. You look at them when they're they're little and they are as cute as anything, but the diaper changes the middle of the night waking up. You wonder how you ever got through it, but once you're through it, you wouldn't trade it for the world. So enjoy the ride because it does go by quickly. All right, so down to business. There are so many false impressions about Christians and Christianity in the world today that it's hard to keep track of them all. The media would have you believe that Christians are all right-wing conservative, gay-hating bigots, and that's being generous. There's absolutely no point in trying to change their opinions since we know who they serve. But there is a huge number of people in the church today who don't know what a Christian truly is, and that's a disturbing tragedy. There are many false teachings that confuse the masses and cause division in the church, which is Satan's design, and he's executing it to near perfection. What I would like to do is clarify what it is to be a Christian, as well as point out a few falsehoods that have crept into the church. I'm going to do this in the form of questions. So that you've probably heard uh, these four questions asked at one point or another. So let's go through them. The one we should all ask is, how do you know that you're saved? It's the most basic question any professing Christian must be able to answer clearly. If they can't, good chance they're not yet saved. The plan of salvation is clear, yet somehow it's been missed by most of the world. Understand the order in which things happen as well, because order is important. First, the world is sinful and has been sinful since the fall of man, and as a result, we are all born into sin. Since God cannot tolerate sin, we were destined for a life separated from God in hell. God did not want this for us, so he provided us a way to be cleansed from our sin, and that way was through a perfect sacrifice. The Lord Jesus Christ, being the only perfect sacrifice, willingly laid down his life for us on the cross at Calvary to pay the penalty for our sins permanently. His payment's not forced on anyone. In order to receive the gift of salvation, one must accept the sacrifice that Christ made on Calvary's cross. If you have bowed the knee and asked for God's forgiveness and asked the Lord to pay for your sins, then you are saved. So we see the order in which things happen. Genesis 3.17 And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree, of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. 
John 3.16. We all know this one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then finally, John 1.12. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So that should answer question one. Question two. Can you lose your salvation? No. That should be enough. But if you could lose your salvation, what a horrible existence we would live. Always in constant fear of losing it. If you had a bad thought on your deathbed, what happens? I guess you're toast. To suggest that one can lose their salvation is to cast doubt on the power of Christ's sacrifice. Besides, when someone has experienced true salvation, their old self is dead. Only God is capable of performing a resurrection, and why would he ever want to resurrect the old nature? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So that's the verse that really shows us the permanence of our salvation. It is possible, however, for a believer to drift away from a close walk with the Lord. Although that's not pleasing to God, it does not cause the individual to lose their salvation. This is referred to sometimes as backsliding. The best example in the Bible is the story of Peter denying Christ. So Luke chapter 22, verses 54 to 62, we see this story. Then took they him, and led him, and brought him into the high priest's house, and Peter followed afar off. And when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the hall, they were set down together. Peter sat down among them. But a certain maid beheld him as he sat by the fire, and earnestly looked upon him, and said, This man was also with him. And he denied him, saying, Woman, I know him not. And after a little while, another saw him, and said, Thou art also of them. And Peter said, Man, I am not. And about the space of one hour after another, confidently affirmed, saying, Of a truth, this fellow was also with him, for he is a Galilean. And Peter said, I mean, Man, I know not what thou sayest. And immediately, while he spake, the cock crew. And the Lord turned and looked upon Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. So it's important to remember, though, that later on, Peter recovers and goes on to do tremendous things in the name of the Lord. He's actually one of the ones we refer to most in Scripture through his writings. Next question. Isn't Christianity just one of many ways to get to heaven? This one, especially if it's asked by those that profess to be Christians, is the dumbest question there is. If there were other means by which an individual could get to heaven, why would God ever choose to sacrifice his only son and subject him to the pain and torture that he had to endure for us? This is one, there's one verse in the Bible that completely puts this issue to rest. Acts 4.12 Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Well, that seems pretty cut and dry to me. Next question. Has God predestined some of us to be saved? This one's a big one. This is an absolutely heretical doctrine that flies in the face of Scripture. 
It came to prominence through the teachings of John Calvin, a murdering psychopath that lived during the time of the Protestant Reformation. He condemned men to death by burning at the stake that didn't comply with his doctrinal teachings. Some may argue that he wasn't the one who lit the fire, but he was the one that passed the judgment, much like Saul of Tarsus did before he, became, uh, he came to salvation and became the Apostle Paul. The difference being, one repented and turned from his sin to become one of God's most faithful and influential evangelists, and the other claimed his murdering was being done in God's service. I don't know about you, but I can't support any doctrine of hate that was passed down from a killer, which is why I don't support any doctrines passed down from the Vatican either. We also see in the scriptures how Jesus dealt with heretics. He rebuked them. He didn't call for them to be burned at the stake. In fact, he condemned the religious leaders of that time for the same behavior. You see this in Matthew 23, 17, 39. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones, and of all uncleanness. Even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because ye build the tombs of prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous. And say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore ye be witnesses unto yourselves that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill ye up then the measures of your fathers, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers. How can ye escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them ye shall scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Barachias, whom he slew in the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, for I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. So Calvin's version of predestination says that God created certain people that were destined to go to heaven. Therefore, the rest of the people that he created were destined to go to hell although Calvinists don't like to hear the second part of that description. It flies in the face of 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So this verse alone shows what God's intentions are. It clearly says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If God created people that had absolutely no ability to choose salvation, then he's a liar and not worth serving. So right there you have a choice. Do you believe the Almighty or a psycho killer? It's pretty, pretty simple. I know other verses are also mentioned which cause confusion, but if you look at the terminology that a Calvinist uses, it's not being used properly. The most misused verse in scripture by a Calvinist is Romans 8, 29-30. And that one says, 
For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Okay. Foreknowledge is knowing ahead of time, not choosing ahead of time. Perhaps a poor example of this is if I buy a dozen assorted donuts and bring them home, I know which donuts my kids are going to want to eat first and which ones Nancy will want. I didn't make them want those donuts. I just know what their preferences are. The God who created us and knows the end from the beginning knows who will use their free will which he gave us to choose salvation and who will stubbornly refuse. Based on that foreknowledge, he already has a plan in place for those that believe to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's the predestined part of the verse. Another term misused in this doctrine is God's elect. You hear them talk about God's elect a lot, which in Scripture is God's chosen people. So in the Old Testament, it's the children of Israel. In the New Testament, it's his church. The term doesn't refer to an individual being predestined to be saved, but rather that those that have come to salvation are set apart for God's purpose. So again, God, knowing the end from the beginning, has chosen some people for use in his service, but not for their salvation. Okay? A final question. This one is asked by the world a lot. If God's a God of love, how could he send anyone to hell? Yes, God is a God of love, but he also has other characteristics. And one characteristic does not override another. All of God's characteristics come into play when we see the plan of salvation laid out for us. So let's go through some of them. This isn't all of them. But first, God is love. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Another characteristic, God is jealous. Exodus 34, 14. For thou shalt worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. God is light. 1 John 1, 5. This, then, is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. God is judge. Psalm 50, verse 6. And the heavens shall declare his righteousness, for God is judge himself. Selah. God is gracious, God is righteous, and God is merciful. We see that in Psalm 116, 5. Gracious is the Lord, and righteous, yea, God, our God is merciful. Pretty to the point. God is long-suffering. We already read this verse. 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness. But is long-suffering to us word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is unchanging. First, uh, in James 1, 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights. With him is no variableness, uh, neither shadow of turning. And God is perfect. Psalm 18:30. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a buckler to all that trust in him. 
And finally, God is faithful. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. So if we put all the characteristics together that we've just looked at, we can see this. Because God is jealous, we can't serve any other. Because God is light, he can't fellowship with darkness. Because God is righteous, he can't stand unrighteousness. Because God is judge, he has passed sentence on sin. Because God is gracious and merciful, he has considered a plan of salvation. Because God is long-suffering, he waits for the sinner to turn to him. Because God is unchanging, his way to redemption remains unchanged. Because God is perfect, his plan of salvation is perfect. Because God is love, he put that plan of salvation into action. And because God is faithful, he will follow through on his promise. So in closing, I hope that for all of us here today, none of the answers I've provided to these questions are earth-shattering new revelations. I would say that if you have a false gospel, you must have a false Christ. Make sure that not only you, but those that you love know the true way of salvation. It's there for all of us. Matt, can I have you close to prayer, please? I want to thank you for this reminder from the word of the simplicity and the graciousness of your way of salvation. Thank you for giving David the perspective to lay it out in this manner, to relate it to your characteristics, your personality. Help us, Lord, to be able to witness to others in this simple way, that they would understand exactly where things stand, and it is their choice to receive it or not. But we pray that they would make the right choice, because we do care about them as you do. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to you as you are to us. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.